0: Just a warning this podcast contains descriptions of violence and discusses suicide and post traumatic stress disorder. Discretion is advised. If you need someone to speak to, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and this is Voice of Real Australia. Each episode, we bring you people, places, and perspectives from beyond the big cities. 25 years ago, a lone gunman, who we won't name in this podcast, killed 35 people and injured dozens more, predominantly at the Port Arthur Historic Site outside Hobart in Tasmania. The shootings rocked the entire country, and resulted in strict gun laws the government hoped would prevent such an atrocity from ever happening again. The echoes of that violence are still reverberating, and for survivors, victims' families, and first responders, the trauma persists. The Port Arthur Massacre is a difficult subject to broach in Tasmania. The mass murder is surrounded by an unofficial vow of silence. But some people think we should talk about it, in order to help Port Arthur, Tasmania and the country heal. Melissa Mobbs works for The Examiner, based in Launceston. She spoke to first responders who were there, some of whom are breaking their silence after 25 years.
1: I was at home and uh, we just finished having our lunch actually and uh, sometime after one o'clock and uh, the radio room rang me and said, look, we might have an incident that may involve a call out with the SOG. Just giving you a heads up, we've just heard that somebody's got a gun down at Port Arthur and shooting and that was the first call that I had.
2: Hank Timmerman lives with the trauma of being on the front line during the Port Arthur massacre.
1: My name's Hank Timmerman. I'm a retired Inspector of Police back in 1996. I had a part-time role as the officer in charge of the Special Operations Group. My full-time role was in fact in charge of the Police Communications Operations Centre. Yes, and I retired about 11 years ago.
2: He feels for the victims, their families and his fellow officers, who confronted unimaginable scenes on that dark day in April 1996. Speaking publicly about his experience for the first time, Hank tells me how the encounter still impacts him 25 years later.
1: Because it is so raw and because there are still so many victims out there, I'm including not only those that were directly injured, but all their families, all their friends, everybody else that had anything to do with poor Arthur, it is still very, very, very raw. You can probably tell from, from the emotion that I'm displaying too that Yeah. I guess that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it, but there are ways that you can talk about it.
2: Hank, like many other police officers and Tasmanians in general, won't speak the shooter's name and is only talking to me to help honour the victims.
1: I don't know if they forget who the perpetrator was. I mean, he's spoken about, unfortunately, far too often. And what we should be doing is not speaking about him, but speaking about and honouring the victims.
2: Even more than two decades later, the anniversary of the massacre remains a taboo topic and Hank says discussion of it is often overshadowed by gun control conspiracy theories and finger-pointing.
1: Some of the things that are are really cruel from my perspective is, one, conspiracy theorists who continue to peddle out their rubbish, to think that we would put ourselves in that sort of a, a situation in so much danger and allow other people to be put in so much danger, all for the sake of satisfying their conspiracy theories, is absolutely beyond me. I just, I can't understand that at all and I get quite angry about every time somebody espouses a view and I have my say and then generally walk away.
2: Hank also faces people questioning the actions of the first responders.
1: And then the other thing that, that I have to live with all the time is I wouldn't mind a dollar for everyone that said to me, why didn't you shoot him? The fact is we have to work within the bounds of the law We were given no specific indication at any time that we had observations of him to give us any legal reason to take immediate action in that regard. At the end of the day, we are trained police officers, professional police officers, we're not mercenaries.
2: Hank didn't take the decision to talk to me lightly. He's conscious that for many, the pain lingers. But he felt he could finally share his story, because his story and the victim stories, should not be forgotten. Hank was a member of the Tasmanian Special Operations Group, the highly trained unit of Tasmania's police force, trained to respond to the most complex and dangerous incidents. Before Hank and his team were sent to Port Arthur, the local police radio room took the first triple zero call.
3: My name's Brett Smith. I'm currently a commander in Tasmania Police. In April of '96, I was a sergeant, a newly promoted sergeant in uh, the police radio room in Hobart. On this particular Sunday, it was uh, just a routine Sunday. It was quite a a normal autumn day.
2: It was in the radio room that Brett Smith and other operators received an influx of calls about shots being fired at Port Arthur. A freshly promoted sergeant at the time, he remembers the details clearly.
3: And uh, it was at about, and I remember this quite vividly, it was about uh, one38 I can just see the hands on the clock now where uh, one of our senior operators yelled out across his console to mine. He said, hey Sarge, you better have a look at this one. And at that particular point, another operator yelled out, more calls on shots at Port Arthur. So in a very, very short space of time, we virtually had a tsunami of calls coming in saying about shots being fired. And at a point then there were people being shot And so the the situation then ramped up very, very quickly.
2: Brett says that despite their training, it never occurred to anyone that what eventuated across the 28th and 29th of April was even a possibility.
3: You didn't really get a lot of time to think, even though you were hit with that feeling of shock. You know, an operation like this, it's something that at that time, uh, and we did quite a bit of incident management training back then, you could just never conceive Uh, would be real. But the reality is the basic principles are pretty much the same so we just peeled it all back to the basic principles and that is get police to the scene, isolate and contain and get people out
2: that we need to get out. The reports quickly changed from shots being fired to people being shot. How did you switch your mind from that state of shock as a human being like Wow, this is actually happening. To I'm a police officer, and I need to do a job.
3: The initial shock feeling is that I suppose that it was that feeling, that the, the tightness in the gut that grabs you. That's the feeling I'm talking about. But at the same time, um, and I don't know how it happens with others, but for me, it was just a matter of I just had to switch on and get back straight back to basics and put our people at the scene try and get some information out, try and work out where the source of the problem was and deal with it that way, all at the same time.
2: But it was not until the operators started writing down victims' names that the reality of what had happened truly set in.
3: There was a lot of feeling of disbelief. I remember we started writing names up on the whiteboard of people we believed uh, had been deceased and that would have been through a very cursory identification check by the people that we ultimately managed to get to the front, to the scene And the enormity of that hit a number of our operators Uh, when you started to see uh, a list of 10 names, for example, on the whiteboard. I vividly remember looking at it. One operator was actually writing it down. And the enormity of that, I think, hit all of us at the time as as to what we were actually faced with here.
2: Brett remembers his training taking over. He had a job to do.
3: I pitched in and helped with the other operators early on when the phone calls were coming in. I had a few phone calls diverted to me and you could hear the shots in the background. There were people on the phone. that They were clearly scared. But there were some that were very articulate with what they were seeing and hearing. And some were describing how people had been shot, where they'd been shot. Um, and there was also a call that I took from one person about uh, two young children that, that had been uh, just been shot. So... The enormity of that, I suppose, it was, I was probably a little bit detached emotionally. It was, for me, it was business. When the dust settles and you've got time to reflect on that, that's when the emotion and the enormity of it kicks in.
2: On the ground, Hank Timmerman was preparing for a situation they knew almost nothing about. They didn't even know how many shooters there were.
1: Helicopters were being organised to fly it down to Port Arthur because there were reports of a number of injured people and we we weren't aware of any deaths, or if there were maybe one or two, but uh, certainly a lot of injuries. And so that was also, at that time, it was organised for four of my SOG team to actually fly down to Port Arthur in a helicopter, fully kitted up and armed, because at that stage we had absolutely no idea where the gunman, or I should say gun, men or whatever, because we had no idea how many, let alone um, what was going on down
4: there or where they were.
1: So it was imperative that we got down there as quickly as we could.
4: So I'm Jim Morrison. I um, On the 28th of April 1996, I was a detective senior sergeant in Tasmania Police. had been in the police service since 1974. And um, I was the on-call special operations group tactical commander.
2: Jim Morrison was repairing a fence at his property near Hobart when he was first contacted about the incident.
4: The first report commented about three or four people had been shot. Then another mobile call came in, like minutes later, uh, went from you know eight or to ten people had been shot. Then it was twelve to fourteen, then sixteen to eighteen. I specifically remember thinking and knowing Tasmania well from a policing sort of perspective, and knowing Port Arthur and that time of the year, being very touristy with a lot of buses and I expected a lot of tourists down there, if these reports were real and they needed to be validated, police were still responding, then then it was going to be quite an event of, of serious magnitude in that location.
2: Shortly after that initial call, Jim was on a flight to Port Arthur. In that period, the shooter had fled Port Arthur in a stolen car after killing its occupants. He drove to a service station, killed a woman and took a man hostage before making his way to the Seascape Cottage, where the violence had originated when he murdered its owners earlier that day. On arrival, Jim was confronted by a hostage situation and was ultimately involved in a more than 20-hour long standoff with the gunman. At the time, police could not be certain who the shooter was, if they were working alone or how many hostages there were.
4: So as we were approaching, uh, we were directed to the Seascape property and the information suggested a car had been stolen One of the occupants of the car had been shot, another one had been abducted, and they'd been taken to the seascape bed and breakfast, and um, police had responded to that location and had been shot at and were pinned down in a ditch. And from the helicopter as we approached, you could see a plume of smoke where reports had suggested the stolen car had been set on light.
2: The next morning, on the 29th of April, smoke was seen coming from the property.
4: There was the sound of a lot of ammunition going off in the fire. Our emergency action plan was actually activated and we were instructed to proceed down to the seascape property to the reports of a naked person lying on the ground. Yes, yeah, so I was part of that. I was part of the arrest team that arrested. Who turned, that person turned out to be the offender and he was arrested. He was naked and he had burns to uh, quite a part of his, uh, the back of his body.
2: The gunman had set fire to the property and police later learned he had killed his hostage. That was when he came running out of the cottage, covered in flames. Hank was also there through the night and remembers coming face-to-face with the shooter during his arrest.
1: He had the most shocking eyes that you could ever stare into. I mean, he didn't say anything intelligible, that's for sure, and the negotiator bore that out. When he was speaking to him on the phone, he was just speaking rubbish, really, and therefore we didn't get any intelligence that we could use. And... to determine whether or not he was alone, whether or not he had hostages who were alive, which we thought he did have throughout the whole time. But unfortunately now that those hostages were in fact dead before he came out. But uh, yeah, I'll never forget the look in in his eyes. Never.
5: The reality is the role of a crisis negotiation team is to try to resolve the situation as peacefully as possible. So you take it on board that your role is to try and resolve the situation peacefully so nobody's got to risk their life and hopefully that you can rescue people that are perhaps being held hostage without them being hurt.
2: Police negotiator Terry McCarthy was tasked with calling the Seascape Cottage landline to get in contact with the person inside.
5: So um, my initial brief was to make contact with Seascape and, and try to find out what was happening there and whether there was anybody there and what that person knew, or what that person's involvement was, so I started making phone calls to that particular address. Initially, there was no answer. I can't remember now how many calls I made before finally the phone was answered by a person who later became known to me.
2: It was the gunman Terry had worked as a police negotiator since 1989 and had extensive experience in counterterrorism at both the state and national level but the Port Arthur tragedy was unlike any other situation he had experienced.
5: Probably the the nearest thing to that would be a a national exercise where there is some major incident involving terrorists and perhaps some, some loss of life and a hostage siege type situation that then has to be resolved.
2: Terry spoke directly with the shooter for some time, but the cordless phone inside the cottage went flat and they lost contact.
5: We essentially lost contact with him. The battery went flat and we had no way of making contact with him again. There is a process for trying to re-establish contact, but the nature of the incident and the gunfire that was emanating out of Seascape made it impossible to even consider negotiating another line into the house that we could use. The pressure then came on once the battery went flat is how are we going to safely re-establish communications.
2: They couldn't, and it would be a long wait for the standoff to come to its conclusion. The most enduring memorial to Port Arthur's 35 dead is called the National Firearms Agreement. It was passed a mere 12 days after the massacre and was a result of all the states and territories coming together to place strict controls on automatic and semi-automatic weapons. The government also spent millions of dollars buying back the weapons which were in circulation. It was hugely controversial at the time. Such was the fear when the Prime Minister, John Howard, addressed a pro-gun rally in Gippsland in Western Victoria a few months later. His security detail thought it necessary for him to wear a bulletproof vest. There are still many people who think the laws went too far, and a small but vocal minority believes the shootings were actually set up by the government in order to force the gun laws through.
6: I'm Patrick Allen. Um, During Port Arthur, I was attached to crash investigation services Hobart and my role at Port Arthur was to head down there basically and uh, I ended up in the ditch outside Seascape.
2: Australia may now be a safer place to live because of the aftermath of the Port Arthur massacre, but that doesn't make the mental health burden easier to bear. It's something retired officer Pat Allen is all too familiar with. He was one of two officers trapped in a ditch outside Seascape Cottage for more than eight hours during the siege with the shooter. So do you remember what you were doing the
6: day of when you first found out what was happening there? I certainly do. It was a Sunday and Sundays were renowned for sit there and do paperwork. Um, I was on a computer at the time and a duty bike officer came into the the station. This is at police headquarters and said, "Um, are you hearing what's going on on the radio? So that's what we did and we heard about the what was obviously a very large developing situation. We decided to hook up together, go in the crash investigation car and head down that way in case they needed more support.
2: Pat was told there were wounded civilians ahead of the Fox and Hounds Inn, but checking on them meant driving straight past Seascape, where they believed the shooter was. It was an incredibly dangerous task.
6: So as I'm coming down the road, I'm thinking, heads on the right, if he's in there, that's not a good thing. Just when I got with sight inside of the place, I did a U-turn, and that's when he opened fire. And so I just backed, uh, I had a choice, get out of there or back down the road and get to Gary and that's what I did. So back down the road, got out under fire and uh, we went into a ditch and that's where we stayed for quite a few hours.
2: The trauma of the Port Arthur massacre has stayed with Pat for the last 25 years.
6: As much as you want to shake it out of your head, you can't do it. You just can't do it. And every time you hear the mention of Port Arthur, the um, mention of films being made, the mention of the thing that was involved in it, um, you just, it just all comes pouring back.
2: He says life rolled on, but that nothing would shake the memories.
6: My personality just completely changed. I became someone I hated at the end of the day, and and most people hated as well because of the way I was. And um, over time, over many years, things happened to um, destroy my family, basically. And um, it's just been a constant... PTSD has been a constant thing in my life. I've got control of it at the moment, but it doesn't take much for me to to completely overreact to something. I, even sitting here talking to you, I'm judging you right now about you, know, are you a threat to me in any way and, you know, that threat situation won't leave my head.
2: Pat has sought help for post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's something he still deals with every day.
6: I've been to psychiatrists, psychologists, and there's not a lot can be done. I've just got to work through it. And episodes happen, I'd love to not do it, I'd love to not have this built-up thing where I'll go into a hotel and I'll back into a corner and I'll just watch everyone. Everyone's a threat until they're not. You know, friends are a threat until they're not. Families are a threat until they're not. It's just stupid, but but your mind can't stop dealing with it. And and it's a constant lack of sleep. Probably haven't slept properly since uh, 1996 in all seriousness. So on average, um, I've picked up a little bit recently. I'm almost up to five hours a night, which is probably good. But um, it's very broken sleep and the dreams and my current partner could tell you of the nightmares and the waking up. I've even had to go and get myself a little PTSD dog that can recognise when I'm starting to go downhill a bit and it almost lets me know by sitting on my lap that, you know, hey, what's wrong with you? So it's um, it's just a constant thing and it's going to rule my life till the day I die.
2: Port Arthur marks the side of the shooter's rampage with a small memorial garden. Terry McCarthy has long thought that this isn't enough. He wants a more significant tribute to honour the victims.
5: There is really no information there about what happened to those 35 people and and all the other people that were injured. They made a very significant sacrifice for our nation. Our gun laws changed for the safer, I guess, after that event. And yet, for visitors who perhaps weren't even born when it happened, there's really no information there to sort of tie them into the history of the place. And they are part of the history now of Port Arthur.
2: It's been 25 years since the shooter was arrested. He was eventually convicted and the judge gave him 35 life sentences, one for each of his victims, and more than a 1,000 years without parole. But despite the passage of time and the world-leading gun reforms enacted in the massacre's wake, nothing can return what was lost that day, not the victims, nor the sleepy sense of security Tasmania had. The crimes were just too awful and are still too raw. Some of the officers I spoke to even refused to be interviewed if the shooter's name was spoken. And all of them, including Hank, rarely returned to Port Arthur.
1: Well, it took me 10 years to actually go back to Port Arthur as a result of um, attending the incident. And uh, I've been back a couple of times since. And it's got, it's got easier, for sure. But on the, on the anniversary, I usually have you know, flashbacks as to what occurred. And, um, you know, I guess there's some sort of a feeling of hopelessness in as much as whatever damage was done was done well before we even got on the scene. And so, regardless of what action we did or could have taken, it was never going to change what happened. And that's, a, that's really sad, really sad for, um, for everybody concerned. And a lot of people were put through a lot of trauma, not, not only directly but indirectly and, and since people being affected in all sorts of different ways. Um, And there's absolutely nothing that anybody could have done to have changed what happened down there,
6: unfortunately.
2: Most years, an intimate vigil is planned at the Port Arthur site. For some, that's even too much. Leave the past in the past, they argue. But some people disagree and say that we should be talking about it in a respectful way and that the wall of silence surrounding Port Arthur does not serve the victims. Brett Smith, who was in the radio room on the 28th and 29th of April, hasn't spoken publicly since the massacre until now. He says it should be up to people themselves whether they speak or not.
3: Again, I think it's a personal thing for people. I think it's very difficult to draw any conclusion that that people shouldn't do certain things or feel certain things or behave in a certain way. It's very individual and had a lot of impact for a lot of people and it will continue to have for many, many years, I'm sure. Now, and I'm only choosing to speak to it, that's the first or second time I've only ever spoken about it. And the first time was immediately straight after. But I've not spoken about it since. It's not that I haven't been comfortable with it. I, I just haven't seen the, the need to do it publicly. We must respect everyone involved in this and not make judgments about what they should and shouldn't do.
2: Hank Timmerman agrees.
1: And I guess the story does have to be told, but as long as it's done in a respectful way that pays respects to everyone that, that was impacted by the incident, then I guess I don't really see a problem with it because we can learn a lot from history and we have learned a lot from that history, in fact, um, you know, with laws being changed and all that sort of thing. But, yeah, I guess the the untold story is, is how, not only how much it impacts everyone that attended and the, the broader community, but how long it affects them for. And people have to be
4: mindful of that.
2: Jim Morrison says we should be talking about it, if only to remember the efforts of the first responders who treated the wounded and ultimately brought the shooter to justice.
4: We do need to find a balance and there are certain things that I will never reveal to anyone apart from those that I serve with during that 20 plus hours at Seascape. But I respect the fact that the true heroes are the first responders that went to the, the penitentiary site and dealt with that carnage and that, that horrific tragedy. It's not about me. It's about, it's about me supporting events of those police, those ambulance and, and the people down at Port Arthur. That's exactly where I find my balance and, and how far I want to talk about this. It's, not, it's nothing to do with me. It's about to do respecting those that, that face that.
2: For Terry McCarthy, there isn't enough information available at the site. And more could be done to give visitors some context about what happened and about why the victims didn't die in vain.
5: It's my view, and I stress this is my personal view, they deserve some respectful attention. And even if there was just an area at Port Arthur where if somebody was curious about what happened on that tragic day where they could go and find out information, the cross, which is a beautiful memorial to the people that lost their lives, is great, but it's just a list of names to people that don't really know what happened. It would be nice to be able to maybe go to some console there and and see, okay, that person was related or was involved with that person, etc., etc., and understand that they were visitors, no doubt having a wonderful holiday experience, which was tragically taken away. They lost their lives, but as a consequence of them losing their lives. I believe Australia is a safer place to live in.
2: While the simple mention of Port Arthur can trigger his PTSD, Pat Allen says it still needs to be talked about. He's speaking to me now because his friend recently took his own life. Pat argues we need to be more open to talking about trauma, that it helps to heal. He says despite strong support for police immediately after the situation, more needed to be done to help those still suffering.
6: I think it's very important that we speak up about incidents like that and say that you need to really handle it and make sure people are looked after. Look after people. God, even in America, the most backward place in the world, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to this type of stuff, they actually look after their people after a traumatic event. We just don't seem to care. What about all the civilians that went through all that down there as well? You know, the the trauma to those would have been far greater than to the police, probably, because we kind of expect to see bad things. But they don't, you know. The whole society needs to really start looking at where we are with this, with this whole PTSD or mental health. You have a look at the portion of budget that's spent on mental health, it's, it's bugger all, a portion of the police budget, bugger all. They say they do a lot. Nah, sorry.
2: Tasmania Police says there is help available for serving and retired officers. It says the Port Arthur tragedy was the beginning of decades of research into police wellbeing. Jim Morrison is speaking out as part of the campaign to maintain Australia's gun laws. He returned to Port Arthur for the first time in 25 years as part of a walk organised by the Alana and Madeline Foundation, named in memory of two of the shooter's youngest victims.
4: I had tried to put that behind me and certainly leaving Tasmania and bringing my family to Victoria for other opportunities helped to do that, I guess, 25 years on and here I am talking to you. I I did that. I, I, I turned my back on events and tried to keep it to myself because it does nothing to the victims and the way that they're dealing with grief and trauma for others to speak out. But I guess I'm doing this now because most Australians support strong gun safety framework and we must collectively do everything we can to avoid a US gun style, culture, or certainly another Port Arthur.
0: That's Jim Morrison talking to the examiner's Melissa Mobs. He's gone back to Port Arthur for the first time in 25 years in an effort to maintain Australia's gun laws. And again, if this story has impacted you in any way and you need someone to speak to, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email us at voice at au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com/slash Voice of Real Australia. Follow me on Twitter at TomMelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Courtney Griesbach, Donna Adams, and Phil Briggs. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast. <music>